You are listening to Taking Art Apart, a podcast presented by West Den Haag. I am Rosa Sangenberg, visual artist and writer. I am Jael Keiser, philosopher and writer. We are launching an experimental series of themes that one may come across when stepping into the art world, whether as a young artist, established institution or curious viewer. In previous episodes, we have discussed the currency of art in various forms, from the NFT's intake and influence on the art market to a more mental form of currency, namely the omnipresent yet unreachable success. This time, the starting point is a much more common form of currency connected to the art market, the money. Being the most recognizable form of currency, it is impossible not to consider money an inevitable part of an artist's career, no matter how dreary that might sound. Whenever money comes into talk, an artist's practice starts to look like a business. It is therefore not uncommon to hear the statements that money kills creativity and that art has to be autonomous. But to what extent is this really true? And how can artists be able to distance their creativity from the businesses it inevitably will be breeding? In this episode, fellow podcaster Jael reflects on the artist in business. Later, Jael and I will talk with Nadine van den Bosch from the young organization Young Collector Circle, intrigued by their mission to save the art world, one artwork at a time. We also briefly revisit the conversation of two artists we heard in a previous episode. But first... Today, Rosa and I are on our way to an art school. We'll soon walk among students who are probably hoping for a prosperous, professional, artistic career. We're wondering how much do they actually allow the money talk to infiltrate their future career plans. And therefore, we are going to ask a question. Possibly one of the most tabooed questions you can ask inside an art school. to uh, be part of a podcast. Oh. It's about art, it's from West in the mm-hmm. Hague. Uh, we will just ask you one question. My name is Togai. I'm from Fine Arts Painting, fourth year, graduating. So the question is, uh, mm-hmm. how do you uh, plan to make money? Mm. Um, good question. <laughs> I hope to apply to like <coughs> residencies, rewards, galleries, you know. So I've been looking at lots of open calls for us to come. But ideally I hope to like be able to create my art and you know, make money off that, you know, away from selling, from representing. Uh, Maya, I'm in fourth year scholarship. Right. I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably apply to some funding, see some residencies, and then like try to get other jobs, I guess, and to see like how I can improve my art making in my life. My name is Dav. Um, I'm in, thir- in a third year of fine arts in the sculpture section. Well, <laughs> um, I have been thinking about it recently because I think the most 
like like easy way is to sell work um, and I do have a bit of a problem with selling work because I don't know like sometimes I feel like once you sold your work it's not an art book anymore but it's more of a commodified entity my name is Lakisha I'm, I'm 23 and my department is fine art sculpture third year how do you plan to make money? <laughs> um, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, not necessarily with my artwork. I plan to mostly have a job outside of that that will sustain, um, like that will basically fuel my work. But I don't expect to, I don't expect that my work will be my primary income. My name is Chiara. I'm in the fourth year fine arts painting printmaking section. Very good question. I have no idea. Um, well, uh, I'm Jemima, the young I'm fine arts, as you know. This is what I'm to do. Uh, that's a good question, actually. Um, think through funding and working together with people so you get more attention in a way. I would love to be able to yeah, um, earn my money through making art and not do something on the side necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Karasa Betis, I'm the fourth year fine art in the printmaking department. Oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Well, uh, I'm now uh, trying to be a student as long as I'm able to. So I applied for a few universities and a few uh, masters of fine arts or, uh, relating to that. And um, well, if that works out, then I'll do that, you know, with some side jobs. And otherwise, I'm planning to um, create projects together with friends of mine, maybe try to create a collective of some sort in order to at least get some exposure and from that figure out money. But I think the most important thing right now is exposure, and money can be made through side jobs mm -hmm. in the weekend, for example. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Heidi uh, Holmström. I'm studying in the second year, uh, Fine Arts, and the section is Sculpture. Uh, it's a tricky one. As a student, it takes quite a lot of time, so I'm basically living with the student loan for now. Uh, and do you have plans for after you graduate? Um, not yet, not right now. I'm Andre, third year Fine Arts. My plan is to make money. Um, well, the paintings I'm currently doing, um, I'll put it softly, easily. My concept kind of goes hand in hand with, uh, with um, what people consider highly valuable visuals. That's what I'm aiming to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm planning to make money in the private sector, um, so selling to curators, uh, museums, galleries, private buyers, because I'm not, I'm not yet convinced by with using public money for uh, artists sustaining their practice. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have to do more research in that. I'm a bit afraid it's um, not a very populist, uh, you know, approach on on public money and taxes, so private money, okay. selling collectors. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Great. Nice, That's thank you.
Slightly in awe of the current finance students' well-reflected ambitions, we move on with more ease to the next part of the program. Now we hear an essay written by Yael reflecting on a humorous yet critical to the point book Playing to the Gallery, helping contemporary art in its struggle to be understood by the British artist Grayson Perry. During the review, we incorporate parts of an interview with Italian artist Cesare Pietrusti to highlight some of the concepts of an artist in business. His artistic oeuvre spans over a decade and has, so to say, participated in the whole spectrum of the art as a business. These snippets of Pietrusti are part of a 24-hour-long interview which took place at Western Haag in 2021. And there you have it, the ideal formula for art in the 21st century. Because, of course, the nearest thing we have to an empirical measure of art is the market. By this reckoning, Cezanne's card players is the most beautiful, lovely painting in the world. I find it a little bit clunky kitsch, but that's me. $260 million it's worth. Grayson Perry's book, Playing to the Gallery, implicitly is titled Sucking Up to the Academic Elite. It is a great exposition into the functioning of or guide for navigating the art world, including abandoned industrial factory buildings, gallery gift shops, political t-shirts, white cubes, ambitious dealers, studio assistants, bandwagons, urban landscapes, and of course, the Venetian secret to what makes art good or beautiful. The British artist is well known for his ceramic works, drawing and tapestry, as well as for his alter ego Claire, which comes back in his humorous illustrations in the book. What I think he does exceptionally well is show the arbitrariness of success. Yet at the same time, success is not random at all. The art market works like its own ecosystem, where the elements I just summed up are all equally influential. In this perspective, Seeing art as autonomous might be an outdated way of thinking, or perhaps just very utopian. After all, artistic integrity does not pay the bills. He explains so bluntly in his chapter, Democracy has bad taste. Monetary value is not what makes an artwork important, of course, but it often trumps all other meanings because people are easily impressed by huge sums of money. Such a statement might be too simplistic and cynical, however. There are other roles to art besides just being an asset class. I would think namely for storytelling, mass communication, pushing boundaries, etc. How does a place like a commercial gallery price art, given these different roles according to which one can choose to value art? Perry describes the long road of twists and turns such an artwork might take. For example, in commercial galleries, artworks are often priced by size, he says, where a big painting will cost more than a small painting. Not that it is necessarily better. And then, when eventually a painting ends up at an auction, it then will be priced differently again. There are even measures of quality according to color where apparently red paintings will always sell best, followed by white. 
And before a red painting even gets to be priced, it has to have been validated enough by art professionals to get to this point of pricing in the first place. Validation is the key, says Perry, to understanding how some art is regarded better than other art, or at least within a large part of the art world, including public art at roundabouts. Knowing who will validate your work is a special kind of knowledge, whether these are your peers, critics, collectors, dealers, and public. And usually in that order, yet I think this may be debated these days. This concoction of lovely consensus, also the title to one of his ceramic pots, could then get you far ahead. With Rosa, I've been talking a lot about the Italian conceptual artist Cesare Pietriusti. He has been making art since the 70s with lots of different mediums, from photography to performance to visual art. Visual art that should actually be burned by the viewer, but is more likely received and treated traditionally. Pietrusti plays around with the traditional uses and potential of art and the art market, and he posits himself in the debate between artists, collectors, and exhibition makers. For Pietro Justi, it is not about art as an object, but about living and life as an art practice itself. The non-functionality of art, and arguably of life, and at the same time the supposed functional framework that is culture and industry seems to be center stage in his practice. He's talking, uh, that's something I very specifically remember, that he talked about the fact that he, in the 90s, he was part of a gallery and he really started selling works and got, yeah, could really, yeah, live a comfortable life from this, selling his work. At the same time, he discovered that his works became very repetitive uh, and not like he didn't experience so much anymore. So uh, he just decided to stop this and just do again very experimental work and then he as a consequence didn't sell anything for 20 years oh wow <laughs> so that's really it's almost like the caricature of what you would fear in art school probably and what did he do in the meantime do you remember um well he did all of these weird not weird sorry he did all of these performances such as um he did this performance where it, he was asking people to take the oh, where, how was it? like people were asked to bring their clothing, their most favorite clothing, and he just exhibited all these people's clothing. Uh, and so he could really make money from this. No, that was something he did, do, did during the years. He didn't really make money. Oh, so he was just. So maybe the works he made before then were more like indeed sellable works, like yeah. prints and stuff. Yeah. And when he stopped selling his work, he started doing performances, but not necessarily make doing anything to how. So I was, I wonder how he uh, got by, you know. Uh, well, the, the things he was a teacher. Oh, uh, yeah. He was teaching. Okay. He does, ha he does have a different background, educational background. He does like medicine, like no psychology. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Seeing art as life, and life as an art practice, diffuses the mystical values we assign to art. 
The idea of originality or newness becomes much more arbitrary by relaying the working process itself to the final artwork. In his 2007 performance Eating Money, an auction, visitors were invited to take part in an auction which sold a 500 euro banknote. Or more specifically, it sold the performance of artists Petrosi and Paul Griffiths to eat the banknotes of the highest bid. Upon swallowing the money, the pair waited for the notes to be naturally evacuated. Remaining almost intact, having undergone the digestive process, they were then displayed in Icon Gallery in Birmingham before being returned to the successful bidder. In his 24-hour interview at Westenhaag in 2021, he met with Lotus Royakkers, who you may remember from a previous episode in our podcast. Lotus invites him for a game of backgammon. They speak about the paradoxes of the artist in business, starting off with a modified version of his eating money performance. But the idea of the performance is that you multiply the value. Mm -hmm. The economical value of the banknote is multiplied thanks to the art intervention. Yeah. So it's interesting exactly because it, goes, it jumps from 500 to mm -hmm. 10,000. If it didn't jump, if it goes from 1,000 to 1,000, would yeah, not, no. would, the, the idea is that the art yeah. value, the artistic value, can prevail over the ordinary economic value of the, you know, mm -hmm. of the regular banknote. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the game, so yeah. to say. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't have a necessarily a fixed price. In the sense that, in that case, the collector has offered us one ten thousand, and I have. And where did this collector come from? He just walked in there. And <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, also. I think. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I mean, think I saw he saw the piece in a, in an exhibition. I, I exhibited. I used the piece for an exhibition, mm -hmm. and he had seen it, and he had asked me. But they, he already yeah. had bought a piece of my of mine. Okay, so he was already in ago. the in the network and everything. Yeah, I hadn't seen him for a while, but yeah. He knew your work and he was he already, knew he knew he knew yes. what he was buying. Yes. He had trust. Lotus and Cesare discuss shifting networks as your artistic practice develops. For Pietro Justi, the contact to a gallery seemed to be all that mattered as a young artist. Later in life, he would realize that as a side job, something that allowed him to make art for other purposes than selling. What happens when you move from a private network to a public market and what should you pay attention to in order to maintain personal artistic integrity, whatever that may mean? For me, going to New York meant to realize that being an artist meant to talk or to address people that you also do not know. Because yeah. when, when in Rome, you know, I went to New York mm. for the first time, I was 28. Now, until then, everything that I've done when I was in Rome or in Italy, mm. I always had in mind that whatever I could do in an exhibition, I knew personally the ones who would come to see my work. But and that meant that I could talk with each of them and explain maybe with mm -hmm. my words mm -hmm. 
what was not completely uh, you know clear or mm. or convincing with the exhibition difference of scale means that you go from a, a sort of a private small system to a bigger public like the door for example which is the door uh, which mm -hmm. is in west now mm -hmm. uh, where other people would scratch right in a bar it was in a bar in italy yeah it was in the toilet in the toilet yeah just yeah. for the viewers that don't know yeah a door and there were that people could just write from the inside of the toilet they could just do anything they they like and now it's in 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 the museum yes and also it's not in west what because it's from a museum in Bol in bologna yeah because bologna. Uh, um, but, but you an art collector. To, you sold it to. I well, sold it to a no to a private collector. Oh, and he. Uh, and he gave it. He gave a, it. In loan on a loan. Oh, okay. On a long-term loan mm. to the museum because not, <coughs> for collectors is also. But then, then you don't have any control anymore of how or, or where it's put. That that's. Well, if you sell something, the the, the new uh, owner. Mm. can say it's mine and do whatever yeah. I want. But, but if you sign some contract you can ask. And, and I proposed him to give it on loan to the museum. And for him it's fine because you know having a piece in the museum also the, okay. the, the value increases. And I said we do this but we sign, we sign on this loan that if the museum or anyone else of you want to exhibit the, the, the piece has to ask me if I agree. But anyway, for a young artist, I think the most, uh, visual yeah. artist, I think the most important thing is to, you know, that you have to find your own thing, something that it's really something that you're interested in, in researching, mm -hmm. and uh, find, you know, all the consequences and, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the ramification out of that, mm -hmm. but insist on, on, on that, you know, and mm. uh, but then not considering that if nobody buys it, it means that you are in the wrong way. No, no, that's something that, no. No, it's more important than selling is to create dialogues with uh, other young artists. Yeah. People who come from the same school, yeah. for example, mm -hmm. maybe even create little groups. Yeah. Because like little groups helps you collectives. Yeah. Because little groups helps you also to do some kind of self-promotion that is not only individual. I'm gonna say if you promote yourself, you feel like you're, you know, a bit stupid. Your artwork. This is me. Oh, look at me. Look at me. Yeah. While. Look at yeah, us. I don't want to do that. That's sounds a little different. You yeah, know? yeah. Sounds more. Yeah, you have more know. of a base maybe to say, hey, hey this is us, and you this know, is like, us. This yeah. makes some it's kind not, of co yeah, yeah, it's collective not like you're sense. You're on your knees and you're begging to. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds sounds easy, but yeah. It's not easy. It's vastly unpredictable, mm -hmm. <laughs> but. Yeah. But uh, you are going to be uh, black. That's easier. Black. And you're gonna go like this. Uh, yeah, the one who throws the highest now can start. And then one, yeah. two, three. Yeah. But yeah, then yeah, these yeah. two are in, are in bit. 
Yeah, you're in danger. You're pretty much yeah. Hmm. Fucked there, but it's fine. From investors spending billions to profit financially from seemingly arbitrary artworks, to artists advising their visitors to burn the artist's artworks in order to finish them, the value of art can look nothing less than absurd when comparing them to money. But in a sense, it is also this absurdity that makes even the most mundane subject such as money become an interesting aspect. Being an artist is possibly the only profession where absurdity is allowed, even encouraged and financially supported. It is as if art is this magical currency where even a banana taped to a wall can become $120,000 worth. While most would agree that money adds nothing of interest to the aesthetic value of a work, we can linger a bit on the fact that the money we keep investing into the practice of art, first of all, is a fundamental belief in art's continuous existence. How much can we talk around art without actually talking about the art itself? Surely, the economic value of an artwork is determined by an impressive amount of outside factors. Yet, in the end, the main criteria for a highly valued artwork might be to simply be good. But being good in the public eye relies upon outside factors such as art collectors' interest, visitor count, and also funding. But how do people, like art collectors, deal with and take responsibility for these judgments? When you have a collection, I think the common denominator, the red thread, is, is you, it's, it's the person. A lot of people just really collect from a personal point of, uh, point of view. Uh, but of course, there are also collectors who really have like certain themes or topics or mediums that they really focus on and they really uh, narrow it down to. Uh, but I think mostly, at least for me, it's like a, uh, a collection of, of personal uh, memories. Now, Yael and I go into conversation with Nadine van den Bosch, director and co-founder of the Young Collectors Circle, an organization aiming to give young prospective art collectors access and insight to the ever-growing and inspiring art world without spending a fortune, but also to support the financially fragile art world and allow it to keep doing what it does. To begin with, we ask Nadine if she can explain a bit about what the Young Collectors Circle is. Young Collector Circle is a non-profit platform, it's a community-based membership platform that is dedicated to um, supporting the art world. Um, so we have quite a lot of um, members as our um, emerging art collectors uh, and art lovers who have joined us to, um, to find their way within the art world and to start their own, uh, own art collection. So you are kind of the facilitators towards the art collectors? Yeah, exactly. What we try to do is give them, um, give them the, the insight and the tools and also the, the confidence to start, their, to start their own collection. Um, so when we started, we thought it would be really important to find a platform that is dedicated to really supporting the arts and educating a new generation of art collectors. And uh, how did you come up with founding this circle? 
Um, we started about six years ago uh, and really actually with, with two ideas in mind. On the one hand, um, we heard from people in our immediate surroundings, the people who are uh, interested in art, people who go a lot to museums, who are really interested in arts and culture. Uh, but for some reason, they never went to, uh, to a gallery. So there was always this kind of threshold, even for people who were very interested and also eager to learn more that uh, there's a pretty high threshold to really enter the art world and buying art yourself. So mm-hmm. people had like this idea that uh, you either have to be like an art historian or you have to be old or you have to be rich <laughs> to be an art collector. And we thought, well, this is like a um, uh, something that is uh, clearly not true and something that we uh, want to want to take away and to give them a new a new perspective on uh, on collecting and showing everyone that art collecting is is for everyone despite your background or your budget or your taste. Mm-hmm. So we decided to start with a range of events to open up the art world and really give people the tools and the confidence to start their own collection. Uh, with also the idea in mind that with, by doing so that you really support artists because if you buy a work they have some uh, financial means to uh, create new works to develop their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, uh, this was also during the time uh, that there were um, uh, very large, quite devastating cutbacks in uh, grants and subsidies, uh, courtesy of, uh, of Halbe Zijlstra at the time. So we also felt that we needed um, to, to share this kind of responsibility for the, uh, for the arts and for the thriving arts climate. Mm-hmm. And so this was also one of the reasons that, well, we all enjoy arts and culture. So how can we contribute to this as well, being an art lover or an art collector? Cool. I think it's also interesting in that way that when the, the public art sector basically, or the public art funding in this case would fail, mm-hmm. it's also nice to see that somebody actually takes it into like their own hands to then yeah. make the private sector stimulates the needs of yeah. these artists instead. But of course you do uh, pick out certain artists to present, right? In, in yeah. Your, in your guide, uh, guided tours and yeah. your studio visits. And how do you go about finding these? Um, well, of course, um, our whole team is uh, very active within the art world. So of course we see a lot of exhibitions. We go to a lot of shows. to graduation festivals, etc. So we try to show the uh, the art sector in all its plurality and uh, multi-facetedness. So we try to really create a balance within our program. Um, so not only in terms of background uh, of artists, but also in the kind of medium that they work in, uh, the skill that they work in, uh, uh, whether they are very uh, emerging or a bit more established. So we really try to give like a an open view of mm. what is going on within the contemporary art world at the moment. This brings me actually to a point that I was wondering because um, these days art has such different mediums and if you're bringing people in touch with collectors and with artists to buy from, then I'm wondering if what you buy, is it always then an object or do you try to look at different ways of buying art, for example, if it's not a material thing Mm -hmm. or do you really try and make it... uh, specify art that someone can take home with them. 
Now we uh, we actually really try to open up people's uh, minds about what kind of art classifies as collectible, so to say. So um, we also really focus on um, artists who work in media that are not necessarily so easy to collect, such as video art or digital art, or artists who work in really large installations. I think it's uh, it's important to really keep an open mind when it comes to uh, comes to collecting and not narrow yourself only to artworks that are like easy to pick up and uh, and take home so you also because i was wondering for example if you bring people in touch with someone who makes big installations do you have any idea how that goes on then with the yeah. protocol of uh, installing it in their homes or exactly in the gallery? yeah because um, for instance um, when we do a, a studio visit to an artist who only works on a really large uh, large scale um, it can also happen of course that maybe a few years later one of the people who joined the studio visit has the idea like hey I also want a an artwork by that artist but I don't have that much space but maybe I can negotiate a an artwork that is based on a, on a commission so that an artist really makes a site specific work based on the scale and the uh, the wishes of the of the collector but of course keeping the uh, artistic integrity uh, in mind so also that's also a way I think to to open up people's idea of what art is is collectible yeah I think it's really um, uh, a matter of trust I think as an as an artist and as the, the collector the one who buys the art I think when you buy it you also have the responsibility to to take care of it not only by displaying it uh, um, in, in a uh, respectful way, but also to um, to not uh, flip it, to not take it to auction the next year. So this is something <laughs> that I think is also part of a uh, yeah sort of the responsibility that you have as a uh, collector to really be a part of a um, yeah of a sustainable and, and better and better art world, and not looking for your own gain, but really doing it to to support the uh, the artist. In general, I feel like the the idea of an art collector is a bit stained nowadays mm -hmm. because there's a lot of fuss about these people, for instance, who are mm -hmm. buying art to then sell it again because yeah. they can see how their, the value of this artwork is growing. Yeah, because that was also my question uh, towards the relationship between the artist and the collector. I was wondering how can we guarantee uh, that there is this trust and you're mm -hmm. saying perhaps by being as neutral as possible? Yeah, I, th I think for us that, that is the, uh, the thing that we can contribute to be very open, transparent, uh, transparent and, and neutral. And of course always also to, um, to encourage people who are interested in buying a work to get to know the artist, um, dive a bit deeper into their practice, learn more about the uh, the ideas and themes behind the work, maybe uh, organize a studio visit. So it is really a, a, a well thought out decision to uh, to buy the work. And uh, are you a collector yourself also? Uh, very modest, <laughs> very modest. Of course, I uh, I buy a, a work every every once in a while, but to say I'm a, uh, I'm a big collector, not at all. Okay. Know, but I think it's I think I really enjoy of course because I work in the art I think it's uh, it's uh, it's fun to to collect art and also I think it's uh, really great to uh, yeah to support the artists that I think are important not only financially but also by buying their work to to amplify their their voice and also the, the topics that they are addressing mm. and do you also 
focus mainly on buying young young artists artwork uh, yeah for me personally I uh, mostly collect uh, emerging uh, emerging artists mm. think of, of course also because we're from the same generation so it really resonates with me a lot um, so yeah I think that's uh, that I see from a lot of people who are members of young collector circle uh, see this the same uh, the same way no I, I have like a very modest Amsterdam apartment so not a huge uh, villa somewhere where I can uh, uh, have like tons of artwork so I have a very modest collection that is displayed in my house not everything is on view I like to switch it around every every once in a while but I do like to um, to mix and match different media so I always have for instance like a, a video work that is uh, uh, that is on display um, but also drawings photography paintings mm-hmm. so uh, also a sound piece so it's, it's a bit of everything cool how do you incorporate yeah. a sound piece into yeah, your exactly. yeah well that is of course not something that is like um uh, on uh, on play uh, every day but sometimes when i feel like it i just i just put it on like just like you hit uh, hit spotify mm-hmm. and then uh, you can also do that with your with your digital art collection yeah, or what yeah. video art that you uh, turn it on. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so in some way you are also curating uh, the, the, the collection. So mm-hmm. that's a question that I have myself um, more conceptually, uh, whether a collector is almost like an artist or like a curator in some sense. Would you would you agree? or? Well, I think that's that's very generously speaking because I think, of course, um, when you when you have a collection, I think the common denominator, the red thread, is is you, is it's the person. A lot of people just really collect from a personal point of uh, point of view, uh, but of course there are also collectors who really have like certain themes or topics or mediums that they really focus on and they really uh, narrow it down to. Uh, but I think mostly, at least for me, it's like a uh, a collection of, of personal uh, memories as well and so if each work that I have I really remember like when I bought it where I was what the reason uh, behind it was so I think for a lot of people it's a very personal uh, display but that's also the thing very passionate collectors they 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 don't think about the space so much I think they they will make sure that they will make room for it yeah exactly <laughs> and I think that's also the really like the right mindset that you really go for the work itself and not only immediately see like, well, does it fit uh, uh, above my couch, but really buying something that you uh, aren't, aren't enthusiastic about. Yeah, and also this connection, I think you feel like you're the craving, but also the connection with, uh, with the work. Are there um, specific collectors or collections that you find interesting? Not necessarily um, people um, that I want to call by um, by name, but I think there are a lot of interesting collectors uh, uh, in the Netherlands who are really um, make no compromises. So as, um, there's certainly, like you were saying, who just really, if they want, you see a, a painting that is uh, two by three meters and they really love it and their budget allows it, they just buy it regardless of uh, whether they have the space or not. So I think that is very this um, this devotion for me is very inspiring, but also um, the generosity of, of sharing your collection. I think nowadays there are quite a lot of um, private collectors who have opened up their collect uh, collections to uh, other art lovers and maybe emerging collectors. You connect supporting the art sector to uh, something that is sustainable. 
And I was mm -hmm. wondering whether you could elaborate on what this sustainable support means. Yeah. Is it about making art affordable or is it more about the specific individual art practice that you want to empower? Uh, no, what we, uh, what we try to, uh, to do is really create long-term commitments. So that is what we mean by a sustainable uh, contribution. So the people who, uh, who join Young Collectors Circle, who, start, uh, their, their, uh, who are emerging collectors, we really want to, um, yeah, to stimulate them to, to follow, follow artists for a longer period of time, to start uh, really collecting art, not only buying something once, but really being a part of this whole art world and of the, uh, of the ecosystem. So really to engage in a long-term, uh, yeah, um, relationship within the uh, within the art world. Does that have uh, also an important uh, an importance for you for the future? You think of art? Yeah, I, th I think so because a lot of people who have joined us. Uh, I think like five or six years ago, we just started. A lot of uh, our members, they are still active members of uh, of Young Collective Circle. So I think that really proves that people are also looking forward to being a part of this uh, of this art world and get to know artists, get to know other collectors, get to know galleries. So really, to be uh, to be a part of this uh, uh, of this network. Super yeah. enlightening. Thank <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah. you for wanting to talk with us. Uh, yeah, of course. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Just before we finish this episode, let us hear some final words from Thay Sierra and Lotus Rojagas, whom I had the pleasure of talking to in a previous episode about the concept of the material. As our conversation naturally leaped into the business talk, I couldn't help but add a snippet of the discussion, one in which we get an insight into the, at times, frustrating ways in which artists have to find out a financially stable path in their artist career. I have an idea that like if for instance like the gallery world would be more kind of a management role maybe to an artist or somehow or more like for instance in the music world you got record label owners and they try to support their artists and try to push them in making an album or like and then they can reproduce it and sell it and or they invest into it I think only in like really like high-end galleries it happens yeah like i wanted to say isn't this happening with galleries it's happening but, it's but i think it's not really happening in like low if you're not really famous and you, yeah, you join yeah. a ga small gallery they could also say like hey we can help you yeah i mean they will and they will also say uh oh yeah and i mean you you're not really you can go to different galleries but they, they actually it's kind of they own you in a way when when you're yeah but I, my image of a gallery gallerist is someone who sits behind a desk and just stares out of the window until they get an email. And <laughs> then it's like they're not really active in like... Nah, that's Yeah, that's, I that's think funny. for real, it's like for real like that. They're so... And they take 50% of your work. Yeah, that's uh, You need that's to ridiculous. work for that shit. They, they're probably good in talking and like talking to collectors and like organize dinners and <laughs> and try to say hey uh, you should really own this and but i think mm. they could i mean in the music world it's very more common to well i I, I don't know but then in the music music it's even more difficult to get into this network of musicians yeah. and and all that and no i think it's in the art world the same it's also well, like i mean difficult. there's more i think there's more opportunity to 
to get in contact with each other at least like platforms uh, to 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 go together to a a collector uh, i'm at, i'm also going to collectors sometimes via a platform uh, and it's it's amazing to 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 get to know each other from different art scenes because there's so many there's so many in art you have platforms to go together somewhere you know to meet collectors to meet galleries to meet but i think that's also in the music world to be honest there's well, like south by southwest you have all these famous what's the thing in amsterdam uh always three four five days it's very big music amsterdam uh, dance event stuff but like that, that no, no yeah. that's not what i mean that's that's more for the for the for the someone to enjoy the, the the art and it's not for getting to know each other getting to know the other makers Unless you are a maker yourself, of course you meet each other. But as a starting artist, a starting, I, I, I don't know. I think uh, yeah, fine as a, star, a starting fine artist, definitely has more opportunity to meet other starting artists than a musician. I, would, no, would, I, 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 think I, I don't really agree because if you, for example, if I would make music on my computer or like I don't know, I jam something, I record it, I could easily send it to someone and like. Hey, you want to listen to my demo? Hey, uh, you want to maybe do a remix? But you're this? not, yeah, but you're not a professional. You're you're not aiming to be in the professional field of of. You would be uh, more of a, a hobbyist then, you know, like not not making any money, trying to make money out of music. But when you want to try to make this your profession, full time, money, get money out of this, a uh, good standard income. Yeah, of course, it's uh, but it's also with art. It's also with fine art. It's fucking difficult. Definitely. I mean, there is no standard income. But it's more about the opportunities, I think. That's, where the, that's what I mean. That was it, everyone. Special thanks to Nadine van den Bosch, Thay Scherer, Lotus Royagas, as well as the fine art students of the Royal Academy of Art in The Hague for taking part in this episode. If you want to know more about the guests and their practices, as well as extra source materials, please have a look at our description box. This podcast is made possible by Western Haag. For the upcoming episode, which will be our last episode at this time, we dive into possible futures. Futures incorporating arts, obviously, but also how art will allow for futures to be incorporated, even the most speculative of those. There's so many galleries, museums, everything. And also small galleries who support starting artists. And But what is there for musicians then? Yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know them, but I, I'm, no, I'm sure that there's like the same idea.